I'm Mike, if you don't know me. Welcome to church today. Um, yeah, I'm glad that you could join us despite the long weekend. I have to work tomorrow, but I hope you don't. Although I'm getting paid very well, so I'm happy. <laughs> so, today we're looking at Mark 10, 35 to 45, um, in our Kingdom series. So they say that there's two things that you should never talk about with your family at dinner, and that's religion and politics. We're at church, so we're going to talk about religion, um, but we're also going to talk about politics. <laughs> so I grew up in a large extended family, and we had all manner of heated discussions about God and the world and things like that. And so it's no, no surprise that these topics have become my favourite topics to discuss with others. So tonight, if you indulge me, I'm going to talk about both. But before you sharpen your pitchforks, let me clarify what I mean by that. It's not my, it's not my intention to uh, discuss political parties or which Australian party leader has the best media presence or who you should vote for at the next election. I want to explore the truer meaning of the word politics. I mean the way in which we relate to the broader community um, and the different struggles uh, that are uh, related to that, how we live with others. And now this is a really important topic to discuss, to explore, and it's one that we often neglect at church. There are many voices that are aired in the media today and they're all pulling us in different directions, but we must primarily be formed by the words of Jesus um, as we explore this topic. So, now I'm going to give you even more reason to pull out the pitchforks, but I'm just being a little bit facetious, so bear with me. Christianity is political. And in fact, it is more a politic or a way of relating uh, with others than it is a religion. But not in the way that we expect. A religion is a set of beliefs and practices that are re usually relegated to the private sphere especially in our modern world. But the Gospels tell the story of how God has become king on earth as in heaven. It is a story about God acting in public. Although we often relegate our faith to the private sphere, if we follow Jesus, it necessarily shapes how we engage with and in the world and with the broader communities that we find ourselves in. So, how should we relate um, to others? It's a timeless and universal topic. And in our passage, a, a band of motley young men from a backwater in the Middle East 2,000 years ago are also wrestling with these things and the implications of what it means for God's kingdom to have come. So, let's read from Mark 10, 32 to 45. They were up on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. We're going up to Jeru Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. 
Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He, re- he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with? We can, they answered. But Jesus said to them, you will, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant um, with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, as we work through the passage today, we're going to explore two options that present followers of Jesus as they interact with the world. The first is adopting the way of the kingdoms of the world. And the second is the contrasting revolutionary way of Jesus, which calls us to interact with others in a way that defies all the logic of this world. And in doing so, I hope that we'll see that true power and authority consists not in reducing other people to our service, but in reducing ourselves to their service. So normally I'd have a PowerPoint, but I didn't get time. So visual learners, please forgive me. Um, I hope you can follow along still. So first, let's delve in and explore the way of the kingdoms of the world. Our world is often characterised by power grabs and power moves. I love Hamish and Andy, um, and they've recently put out a book about power moves. Um, And it shows some of the funny ways that we try and get the upper hand um, over others in like social situations. So here's some examples. They say that if you see a hitchhiker with their, with their thumb up trying to you know, summon you, you should just simply reply by giving them a thumbs up back. <laughs> when a friend gives you a lift home, instead of abiding by the common etiquette of joining them in the front, sit in the back and treat them as your chauffeur. When you're meeting someone for the first time, um, who you've been told about before, simply say to them, oh, I thought you'd be taller. (laughs) These examples are tongue-in-cheek, but they reveal that the quest for power often motivates our actions. We often use strategies to to one-up each other. And the people of God are also prone to compromising with this way of life. We all know the stories, right, about fights over the colour of carpets in churches. And in today's scripture reading, we see that the disciples also are prone to adopt the world's way of power grabs and power moves. 
The scene opens as Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. And this is a um, section in Mark's Gospel which is uh, characterised by this repetitive pattern um, where Jesus is predicting his crucifixion and then the disciples misunderstand him in each instant after that and then they have a chat about it. And so Jesus again is predicting his death here in verses 32 to 34 and the disciples misunderstand James and John completely ignore what Jesus has said and ask for the preferred seats in his glory, which prompts the rest of the twelve to absolutely fume over the brothers' bid to outrank them in this glory. How can the disciples be so insensitive, we ask? Jesus has sort of bared his soul to them about his coming suffering. I think that their, imp- their, their incomprehension here actually makes more sense when we see the context here. Notice a few things. In verse 33, we see that Jesus has identified himself as the Son of Man. Now, this concept comes from Daniel 7, in which it says, One like a Son of Man approaches the throne and is given authority, glory and sovereign power. You see, the, the, the glory that the disciples are referring to here, um, that they're asking to be top dogs in, is a close, I think, allusion to this passage. Here, the Son of Man's given authority and glory, and it's a triumphal picture, and I think that's what's in their head. They seem to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They're not all wrong. And they noticed that ultimately he's going to ascend to a glorious throne and they seem to be sensing that the hour of the establishment of God's, of Jesus's glorification of his kingdom is quickly approaching as they journey towards Jerusalem, which is why they're suddenly like scuffling for power in that kingdom. But they really have no idea what all of that means or how it's going to be achieved. And the problem is that they have allowed their cultural assumptions and the ways of the life in their time to co-mingle with their understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah and their understanding of the Son of Man concept. They lived in a dog-eat-dog world. They had grown up in a world where they'd experienced this bitter oppression from the Romans who relied on control and coercion to become a dominant force in the world. And they'd also grown up with stories, I think, um, of like things like the Jewish Maccabean revolt, which was an incident incidents where the Jews rose up and took on the Greeks, I think it was. And I'm sure the disciples were also inspired by this and had this in mind, because... These Jews, they maimed and tortured and killed their way to this short-lived, cut, quasi-messianic kingdom. And at this time, what we see is that the standard of greatness in the world, what was considered great, was to have power. The test was, how many people can I control? It was a world where you had to fight to survive. And since the disciples were surrounded by this way of life, it influences them, and it's tainted their understanding of Jesus' mission 
Though they recognize Jesus Messiah and starting to get it a bit, they completely misunderstand the nature of what that actually means. And so as they journey towards Jerusalem, based on their faulty understanding, culture-infused understanding of this Son of Man concept from Daniel 7, I think they're regarding the way of Jerusalem as a military march. Um, The disciples expect Jesus, the Son of Man, to overthrow the oppressive Roman Empire when they get to Jerusalem finally. And there he's going to establish this awesome earthly kingdom and restore Israel to its former glory. And he's going to lord that authority over the Romans in particular and tyrannise them for abusing Israel. Now, Daniel 7, as they understood it, I think also presents them with some opportunities in the new kingdom. Verse 18 of Daniel 7 says, The holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. I think this sounds pretty good to them. Um, And they're enticed by the possibilities that this triumphant reign might grant them. They're going to capitalise. And this only seems reasonable because, after all, they've been loyal to Jesus up until this point, despite the odds being stacked against him. So surely they'll deserve some special privileges. Now, at school, I was a textbook teacher's pet. And so I sort of understand... uh, this, under, this sounds a lot what I was like at school. You know, as a former teacher's pet, I can tell you <laughs> that maybe you're still a teacher's pet. I can tell you that you don't suck up to your teacher because of who they are as a person, right? You suck up to them for what they offer, and that's good grades. Likewise, the disciples have mixed motivations. They hoped to honour Jesus and his way while also honouring themselves. They understood faithful discipleship um, to Jesus as a means to their own end. And they're not shy about it. When it becomes apparent that they might benefit, James and John quickly demand Jesus to grant them whatever they want in this kingdom. And they, they request to sit at his right and left hand in glory. And of course, the other disciples don't sit by idly. They're also quick to try and strike for their own hand. So what did they want? I think is an important question. Well, I think they were asking, literally, for two things in their request. First, they wanted Jesus to grant them seats of position and honour and preeminence in this new kingdom. They wanted the best seats in the house. Now, as kids, my brothers and I used to wage war over the front seat of the car, so much so that my mum had to create a set roster for when we got to sit in the front. (laughs) My days were Monday and Wednesday, which was good because that's when we did all the the most of our driving, so (laughs) I got to be in there the most. And I'm sure we all know that walk to the car with the siblings that turns into a race and then turns into all out kicking and screaming. And I must say that sometimes we probably still engage in this. And the disciples aren't any different. Daniel 7 seems to indicate to them that they're going to be rulers. They're going to have the seats of honour. But just being the holy people of the Most High is not enough for them. 
James and John want even more. They want to be in the most important position in the, on Jesus' left and right hand. And in the royal courts at the time, the left and right hand positions were reserved for like the chief advisors in the kingdom. And the person of prominence, the king of whoever it was, sat in the centre. So they were, they're looking out for the highest posts in this new kingdom. So why? Is it because they want to be near Jesus? Did they wish to do good with their position and their power? I don't think so, no. The second thing that I think we can see in their request is that what they wanted from the position was power and the ability to exert their will over other people. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man conquers and judges the nations. It seems they want positions next to him where they're going to carry out some of the judgment. The disciples' quest for preeminence and power reveals how deeply they have bought into the ways of the world. Based on a misunderstanding of the Son of Man concept, they have compromised with the world. The kingdom they envision looks just no different from Rome, and their attitudes aren't any different from the Roman rulers. The new age that they're looking forward to has just all the earmarks of the old age. The only difference is that they foresee themselves as replacing the oppressive power structure of the Romans with their own power structure. And today, I think sometimes in the church, we are different, that different. We can also become ensnared by the lure of position, preeminence and power. Throughout history, the church has consistently, I think, battled with this temptation to adopt the world's ways of doing things. You don't need to look much further than the Crusades or Spanish Inquisition or the Conquistadors in Latin America. And since then, though, the position of Christians in the public sphere has greatly reduced over the years. But the church can still fall for this temptation. Many have been duped by false ideas of God's kingdom as if it were of this world and like the kingdoms of the world. We often try to just adopt worldly tactics of achieving power through political means to influence culture or take the West back for God or something like that. And this is you know, both sides of the political spectrum that do this. Many people in the church who identify themselves with the left attempt to make the world a better place by engaging in political activism and sitting at Caesar's table to affect laws. And this is probably my temptation. While people who are more conservative-minded associate the kingdom of God with an effort to... Um, uh, get in charge in the world, influence lawmakers to pass laws that represent their values. The exact same premise undergirds both of those misconceptions. Each camp is just cutting the moral line in a different place. But both involve God's people sitting at Caesar's table to change laws and to try and Christianise the world as they, how they see it. 
Now, competing for power like the, what the disciples did has negative impacts on us. It can pull us apart and it can also be a big distraction. It's not always a big distraction, but it can be. We, we can be quick to substitute the task of actually um, following Jesus with a vote, as if voting replaces our duty in the world to love people and the like. And I'm not saying that we should disengage from politics or that kind of thing. Um, we just need to remember it's not the be-all and end-all. On both sides of politics and wherever you stand, we can miss the essence of the kingdom mission because we conflate political involvement with doing kingdom work. So, we clearly need a new way of relating to each other and interacting with the world. And thankfully, it's been given to us, which brings me to my second point. It's not all doom and gloom. If you're sick of all this, you know, nonsense and fighting and whatever, then let me introduce you to an alternative way of living. Enter Jesus. He uses his disciples hankering for power as an opportunity to teach them an alternative way of engaging with our communities, with the people around us. And this is a lesson that we also need to be reminded of. The disciples adopted the world's way, as we've seen, and sought preeminence and power. And we are also easily ensnared by this. But the simple, earth-shattering words of Jesus in this passage turn our world upside down. He introduces a new way of life that challenges our most basic assumptions about how to interact with other people in the world. And so, in doing so, Jesus describes two hallmarks of this new way of relating to other people in this passage. So the first hallmark is that while James and John had, had sought preeminence and were, and, and were trying to call dibs on the greatest places, the greatest seats of honour, Jesus shows us that being crucified with him is the true seat of honour. As we've seen, James and John requested these positions of glory alongside Jesus in his kingdom. And in verse 38, Jesus simply replies, you don't know what you're asking for. And then he draws on two metaphors that reveal what it means to sit at his side, to take a position of honour. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with? Jesus turns their request for a throne on its head and he offers them a cup and baptism. And that's the true place of honour, he's saying, is sharing this. And it sounds pretty wacky, but let me explain. The cup in the Old Testament is a common allusion to God's wrath or suffering. And likewise, the notion of baptism refers to being flooded with calamity and disaster. Here we're not talking about what we understand as baptism, really. It's a, it's a different thing that's being alluded to. Jesus is saying to James and John, I'm about to be overcome by a huge disaster through which I will suffer and die. Can you share this fate with me? And so Jesus' response reveals what is required of people who are seeking positions of 
honour and preeminence. They must be baptised with Christ in his death and share in his cup of suffering. In other words, Jesus is asking James and John and us if we are willing to share his passion on the cross. And I think a really interesting irony in the book of Mark points this home. The only other time that the phrase left and right hand is used in the gospel refers to the robbers, to the thieves who were crucified with him at Golgotha. You see, the places of honour coveted by the brothers turn out to be places next to Jesus on a cross. Do you see what Jesus is saying? In a complete contrast to the ways of the world in interacting with others, if you want to sit at Jesus' left and right-hand side, if you want the place of preeminence, then you must be prepared to be crucified with him. Ephesians 2, verses 2 says, that one time, that one time, yeah, we followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the, of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But being crucified with Christ means that we have a new way of life following Jesus. We pledge to live and die by the pattern of the cross. When we follow Jesus, we're signing our death warrants. We die to the world's way of seeking a higher place. But we don't do this without cause. We become participants in a new community that has a new way of living. So what is this way, this cross-shaped way of life, look like? Well, I think this is illustrated as Jesus continues to reverse the disciples' values and, and norms that they adhere to in the second hallmark that he gives to describe the new way of interacting with other people. Jesus uses their um, seeking of power as an opportunity to teach them how this way, this new way, radically redefines worldly definitions of power. In verses 42 to 44, Jesus contrasts the pattern of rule among Gentile nations, among the Romans and the like, to the new way of relating that and, and relating to others that he brings. So we've seen that the yeah, the disciples adopted the Gentiles' way, but Jesus just totally rejects it. He says, not so with you. He gets firm in total uh, opposition with worldly expressions of power. True power, he says, and greatness among his followers is measured by their ability to live as servants and slaves. As servants and slaves who, whose activities aren't directed by their own interests, by, but by that of others, who are focused on the well-being of other people. And this is a completely absurd, even, you know, even like probably morally wrong thing to say um, at the time. The ancient Greeks, they considered independence and freedom and those things to be among the highest virtues. And so they felt just complete revulsion and contempt for slaves. They, they, they weren't a fan. But the preeminent virtue of God's kingdom is not power or even fighting for our freedom. It's service. True power consists 
not in reducing other people to our service, but in reducing us, ourselves to their service. Jesus insists that we must climb down the ladder to greatness. And this all reminds me of a, um, a movie from the 70s called Poseidon's Adventure. Um, in the film, an ocean liner called SS Poseidon is hit by a tidal wave and it flips over. And because of the air that's trapped inside the ship, it floats upside down. And most of the, pa of, of the passengers who, just, you know, who survived the initial onslaught get disorientated in the process and they try to escape by climbing down the, down the stairs to the top deck. So they're trying to get to the top deck. Unfortunately, the top deck is now underwater. And in trying to get to the top, they're actually going down into the water and they drown. Only those who do what is counterintuitive survive. A small group of people descend into the dark belly of the ship until they reach the hull. And by going down, they reach the ocean's surface where they are saved. Likewise, Jesus calls us to an upside-down way of relating with others in our communities in which the lowest are the highest. So today, how is this applied? Jesus calls his disciples to follow his way of suffering and sacrifice to true positions of preeminence and power rather than the patterns of the world. And he calls us to do the same. This has direct and clear implications for how we relate to other people in the world. The disciples adopted the world's way of playing power games. And so I've tried to show that many Christians also, we, we can fall to that temptation too. We try and sit at Caesar's table, take over the West for God or whatever it is, and however we approach it, either from a more progressive or conservative point of view. But the good news is that Jesus isn't seeking power to take back the West for God. Rather, the good news is that Jesus is at work to create a totally new kingdom with a new king and a new rule, a new people, a new agenda, and a new way of life. And this clear distinction means that it's fairly absurd, really, to try and follow Jesus while engaging in the way of relating that the world engages in. We may believe one political path or ideology to be better than another, and that's fine, but, but our primary task as followers of Jesus is not to fight for that opinion. It's not meant to be our main focus Instead, as members of this new community, alternative community that Jesus is creating, we are primarily called to live and demonstrate a fundamentally different way of doing life and relating to people. Following Jesus' example, we are called to transform the world, not by adopting the ways of the world. It's, you know, it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know, like zero-sum power games and that kind of stuff. Instead, 
we transform the world by the much greater power of Christ-like, self-sacrificial love and by inviting others to share in the community he's created among us. So, what does this look like practically? Well, I'm going to give some examples and I think this will help illustrate further what I'm trying to show, how the, the contrast. So, the way of the world is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The kingdoms of the world carry the sword, but those living the Jesus way carry the cross. They do not return evil with violence. They love their enemies and return evil with good. They bless and pray for those who mistreat them. The way of the world seeks to control behaviour, while the way of Jesus seeks to transform people's lives from the inside out. The way of the world advances self-interest, while the kingdom of God is centred on carrying out God's will and acting for others. The way of the world is tribal. It's about defending your own people, your own nation, state, religion, ideologies or what have you. But those who follow Jesus on his way have by love transcended the, tran the tribal boundaries that divide people. Jesus called the disciples to a new way of relating with others. And as a side note, I want to observe one of the really amazing things about this new way of life. And that's that it's accessible to everybody. You don't have to be a big politician or something like that. You can begin right here, right now, transforming the communities that you're in. And we begin by the, with the small things. Anybody can participate in this, in this way of life because anybody can serve. Martin Luther King said, you do not have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. And I think that's good news for people like me and you. But many of us still live out of sync with this alternative way of life that Jesus brings. So, how do we correct this? Well, I want to finish up by exploring Jesus' final line in this passage. So we're almost done. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This reveals what makes this new way of interacting with people, this new way of life possible. Misunderstanding Jesus' mission and what it meant for him to be the Son of Man was at the heart of why the disciples were clamouring for greatness and power and positions of preeminence. Their, their misunderstanding led them down this dangerous road. But in this final saying, Jesus corrects them. And he corrects their understanding of the Son of Man, we'll see. And eventually something actually does change in the disciples. They seem to have grasped the mission, what his, his mission really was. 
And they were actually empowered to go into lives of sacrifice and service for God and, and for other people. As John, one of the brothers, simply summarises in 1 John 3.16, he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Something's clicked. And I think a clear vision of Jesus' mission is also the antidote to our power grabbing. So, what did they come to understand? What does this last saying tell us about Jesus' mission? Well, firstly, Jesus indicates that his death is the ultimate example of this way of living and relating to other people. We serve others because the Son of Man came not to serve, oh, he came to serve, <laughs> Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And these are some of the most shocking words in the New Testament when you, when you grasp what he's saying. It's mind-blowing, I think, because hidden in this verse is Jesus' understanding of what it actually means to be the Son of Man. And it's what the disciples have missed. To explain what his mission is really all about, Jesus gathers the Son of Man concept and he brings it together with the imagery from Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant. Here, the suffering servant is described as rejected by men, a man of sorrows wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, who will justify many and offer his life for others. So, you see what's going on? Contrary to the disciples' expectation, the Son of Man isn't, hasn't come to be served like a human king. He's come to serve others. True greatness is revealed in the Son of Man, who is also the servant. And what makes this so radical is the identity of the, of, of, of the person who does it, the one who does it. It's Jesus, the Son of Man. He's the only one deserving of the highest seat, the highest seat of honour, and, and he's the only one deserving of the right to be served, and yet he models sacrifice and service from his manger until the cross. As Philippians 2 says, while in the form of God he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the Son of Man, who gave up his position of preeminence and power to become a slave, is the ultimate example of this new way of living with others. And in a world where you know, it's confusing and there's a lot of different voices, this should be our model and our guide. But secondly, Jesus' mission as the Son of Man, it's more than just like something that happened in the past. It's not just an example. He didn't just die as a you know, tragic martyr kind of story, which we then just copy. His work is actually operative in us today. He doesn't leave us striving to live up to his example. He actually makes it possible for us. Jesus says, that he also gave his life as a ransom for many. The ransom idea is a familiar image from the time. 
It was a price paid to liberate a slave or a prisoner of war or a prisoner, condemned person. The payment of the price cleaned the slate. And so this image indicates that his death actually does something right here and now. While we have been you know, enslaved by power games and all that stuff, Jesus came and undertook the most extreme, supreme act of service and sacrifice for all humankind. He freely offers his life as a ransom for all and it releases us from all those struggles from power and the schemes that we, we try to control each other with. Our freedom is secured and we are gifted the power now to live out the new way of relating to others. The only way that we can live up to Jesus' demands is if that we realise that he's gone before us and he's broken through and he's cleared the way for us to follow. So today I pray that we will receive the freedom that he's brought us and that we'll allow it to influence our lives, to transform our way of relating to other people. And so I invite you to consider, and me too, how this new way of life might influence how we interact with the people in our communities. So let's just pray to finish up. Dear God, we thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, we thank you that you modelled service and sacrifice to us God, we thank you that while you had the most important position and that you thoroughly deserved it and that you deserved all the power, Lord, that you lay it down for us. Lord, I pray that this fact would change us, would transform our lives and, God, that you would help us to be people who serve you and serve others. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.